Hello, and welcome to the New Models Podcast. On this episode, we speak with information security specialist Kay Diem on digital infrastructure resilience in a time of network upheaval due to Russia's escalation of the war in Ukraine and related sanctions. A quick note before we start. This special report is the third in a series that considers the conditions of this conflict from various angles. Last week, we spoke with P.D. Thorne about the practice of open source intelligence. And in early February, prior to the escalation, we were joined by Anastasia Osipova on the ground in Kiev, who gave us a framework for understanding the muddy, symbolic space that emerges when a country withstands the persistent threat of war for many years. I'm Lil Internet, joined by my co-host Carly Busta. Our guest today is Kate Diem. Let's get into it. New Model Special Report. Continuing our special coverage on the circumstances around Russia's war in Ukraine, we are joined today by Cade Diem, an information security specialist and the founder of the International Digital Infrastructure Research Group, New Design Congress. Cade is a repeat guest on the New Models podcast, and one that we are lucky to also count as a member of our community. We invited Cade on the show to help us think through the informational layer of war today. I'm hoping that in this discussion, we can trace some of the new alignments that this war is laying bare. I mean this in the sense that if we go back to the 1990s and Russia's non-inclusion in the European Union, we see a Vladimir Putin that is disidentifying with the Silicon Valley-enabled neoliberal order, or rather, a Putin that is willing to participate in this new world order as a trade partner while strategically preparing to one day dramatically break from the quote-quote think-different power to the people West and prove Russia's dominance overall. Likely, this conversation will settle more around a discussion of infrastructural resilience in a time of digital uncertainty, but it's maybe interesting to keep that general narrative in mind. One other framework I'd like to offer from the start is that we think of this war on being fought across three different fronts, physically on the ground in Ukraine, financially in the markets and the material impact on the population's various sanctions ultimately impact, and of course, informationally across digital networks. All right. So with that as some kind of base, let's just get into it. Cade, we've been sharing links back and forth all day today, and we've had some discussion in the New Models Discord. What is on the top of your mind? Gosh, where do you want to start? The other night we spoke about Apple and Google Pay being disabled in Russia, And people being locked out of not just being able to pay for things, but also using your metro ticket, which might be on your phone, to enter the metro system. That's like a really interesting, I guess, starting point because this idea of digital identity being married to the financial structures that accommodate things like virtual credit cards. One interesting starting point is, well, what would have happened, for example, if Russia had digitized its COVID-19 response in the same way that, say, a country like Australia had? Mm. How would that sort of chaos, if the entirety of your digital identity, what kind of weaponization could you do from outside of that country? It's really important just to note that like AWS, I think, is still working. iCloud and the Google services themselves are still working. So it's not all of iCloud that's gone. It's Apple Pay, which is a part of iCloud that's gone. We've seen in the past week, Europe and the UK, Switzerland, the US, Australia, Taiwan, Japan, and you know pretty much everybody who's within the Apple sphere of influence place major sanctions financially on Russia. 
That's happening at the level of states, state leaders coordinating with other state leaders. To what degree are the big tech companies also coordinating and in touch with the different state leaders? Or are they acting autonomously? I mean, stopping transactions of Russia's central bank is like very major, but shutting down certain Google services is also very major, completely debilitating to the average Russian. It's important, I think, to remember that these systems have been sold to us, services, infrastructure, all this kind of stuff has been sold to us as a post-state system. Up until this point, we've really grappled with this idea of, well, what does it mean for Apple and big tech itself? What does it mean for them to be like no longer beholden to their nations of birth? And what we're kind of finding here is like some of those assumptions around the loyalties of technology companies is actually like a little bit untrue. Mm. And so the question really now becomes like, are we truly living in a 21st century post-state environment? And are the digital technologies that we have just happening to align? Are the people who run these companies, both from the absolute top, the CEOs, chair people, board members, et cetera, all the way down to the engineering teams that are able to make decisions autonomously, all of these groups of people, are they making these decisions independently based on their own ideologies or are they still beholden to the different states in which they operate in? And the answer is probably a mixture. These are huge systems that have inserted themselves into everybody's lives. There's plenty of examples where it is obvious that there are these post-20th century kind of structures that exist beyond the nation state in, by itself. A simple example is just the amount of independent money that's flown from individual citizens from different countries into Ukrainian relief support or into weapons support or, or the idea that people can come and fight, no questions asked, is something I never thought I'd actually see, sort of like a post, almost like a post-conscript kind of idea, like joining Uber to drive a car. You know, anyone can do it. The space is here. It's your choice to go and do this as the individual. It's certainly true that I think different companies have very ideologically diverse people. I mean, Peter Thiel obviously doesn't perceive the world in the same way as Tim Cook. They probably see the world very differently. But I think like in a lot of the discourse that we have, especially outside of policy directly, I think we make the mistake of lumping people together as like a conglomerate mm, rather than understanding point. that like there is a lot of nuance here. And I think that what the Ukraine situation is doing is solidifying that opaqueness and presenting a package of like actually everybody is thinking the same way whereas it is not really the case, I think. That's a great point, Cade. And I just want to hold for a second on this idea of an expanded statehood or some kind of digital statehood that exceeds the regular state borders. I mean, being only an hour and a half by plane from Ukraine, I mean, maybe the conflict there hits close to home for geographical reasons. But another reason might be is because there's already a kind of shared statehood in the sense that we share an interoperable stack of digital infrastructure. And maybe we speak different languages, but we use the same systems. We can view the war through what people on the ground in Ukraine are uploading to these systems. And this content is not being filtered in any significant way by state authorities of our respective nations. And what you were saying about people going across state borders on their own free will to fight with Ukraine, this is like a really clear articulation of this post-state condition that I think we all feel. Is this an instance of where you have a decoupling of media from the state and then the state being subservient to it? I mean, the concern that they have is like from the fire hose of information that's arriving through these accelerated channels of communication is part of that paralysis that I feel in terms of understanding whether or not it's related to state consolidation of power in the West amongst these digital infrastructures or whether it's post-state. Is it that the world leaders are irrelevant in this context? 
and that the information layer is acting because they represent the same interests independently? Or is it that these leaders who are using the information layer as a weapon against Russia, are they doing that because they hold the trigger in a sense? Mm -hmm. On a slightly different note, there are a lot of technologies that have become much easier to access or have even been emergent in, say, the past 10 years. Different kinds of surveillance or different kinds of monitoring, whether that's just flight tracking or whether that's like the ability to track the uptick in iodine pill sales or these other kinds of ways of gathering information. And I'm curious, what is showing up uh, on your radar? Okay, so this is like the first time I'll talk about this publicly and it's like really not well formed yet. But one of the ideas I've been thinking a lot about is like this, you're familiar with the idea of Uncanny Valley? Yeah. I have this idea of like the Uncanny Valley, but for like information sensing, where like you start with zero education if you have like an XY graph. On the X axis, it's fidelity of information. And on the Y axis, it's like how much you actually know about a situation. And then you start at zero, no education and no understanding. The more that you collect information on something, the more you understand it. And then you reach this point where you have algorithms and all this sort of tool to help you make sense of a world around you in an abstract way. And it reaches a point where your understanding of something totally craters. And then, and then it comes back the other side with like on the ground, actual lived experience. What I'm sort of trying to get at here is like whether digitization of societies makes them brittle. Mm. I think the answer to this is yes as well. I think that there's a um, an issue where the more that we factor in things like the replacement of bureaucracy with digital services such as apps and things like that, of course, this has tremendous benefits in lots of circumstances, but there's also significant examples where that has been a huge destabilizing effect on societies. And this also leads to like some other general thinking, like, is there a relationship between the cost of 4G or 5G connectivity and the amount of disinformation consumed by people in a society, these sorts of things. Mm. There are interesting ways in which these manifest anecdotally. So, for example, Pravda leaking like the full personal details of 120,000 Russian soldiers, like the idea of digitizing the identity information of your army is like a mind-boggling concept to me that immediately destabilizes your ability to respond militarily. The idea of there being a large-scale cyber war happening at the same time as the underground battles is a prime example of this. I think we're rapidly reaching this point where we see all forms of connectivity as a form of technical debt. Mm, interesting. So I just want to hold on that for a minute. A Ukrainian newspaper released all of the personal details, the addresses and the names of the Russian military, meaning that they could be targets far after this war ends of harassment or abuse or assassination. If I understand the or implication. Or calls or ordered pizzas. Or, <laughs> or ordered pizzas. If I understand the, yeah, the implications of this correctly, that's essentially what's being said is you may think the war is happening in real time in Kiev or Kharkiv or whatnot, but this war is going to last you until you die because we know how to find you. Is that, or do you see another implication? It's, well, it's all of that. The ways in which I think digitization affects societies is extremely poorly understood from that context. Mm. And, and the problem is, is that like, it's hard to tell in real time things that we should be concerned about that we're only learning about through the context of the Ukrainian war. What are some of the other things that have come up for you? So talking about, like, for example, ICANN, the Internet Corporation for Assigned Names and Numbers, and they've been asked by uh, the government of Ukraine to suspend 
Russian domains, disabling DNS services and also stopping the transaction or the assignment of domain names to Russian entities. This is actually a core concern that was raised when ICANN was established as an organization, mm. that it was a private entity that was not really beholden to any kind of public office or public image. And that's the, that's the concern that I think is really interesting. The idea that a nation state, whether it's a belligerent force or not in a conflict, the idea that it has lesser control over its own sovereignty in that moment is a more brittle society and a more brittle state, mm -hmm. regardless of whether you think that that is justified or not. I was thinking about how Turkey, there's something called the Montreux Convention, an international agreement that was established in 1936 that gives Turkey the right during wartime to restrict military use of the Bosphorus and the Dardanelles Straits, thereby limiting naval transit between the Mediterranean and the Black Sea. And last week, Turkey exercised this right. And how, okay, well, that would be this like physical precedent. And maybe we can map it onto information pathways. Like if you allowed a bad actor, like, you know, Putin objectively is in this case, you are enabling an act of war. But it just unfortunately doesn't work the same way. Like we use these analogies to help us understand these information structures, but there's a certain point where you can't take this body of water and a ship passing through it and say that's the same thing as like allowing a name server to be listed. It doesn't link up the same way. That's right. All ICANN does is deal with a completely ephemeral network layer that exists on top of physical internet infrastructure. Mm. Essentially, these decisions can be made in the ether where you can be disconnected without any spatial representation of that. Yeah. I mean, to call up one of our favorite terms at the moment, the new confusion, the idea that one could have a kind of military engagement and there not be a spatial referent for what that engagement is. I mean, I don't know if it's unprecedented, but it certainly feels like a new kind of condition of war. But to speak for a moment about another arena of warfare that is often seen as contemporary, though, as historians will note, goes back, you know, to time and memoriam, disinformation. You sent me a tweet thread by a researcher named Laura Edelson, who had a relatively positive view of our ability to digest and differentiate disinformation. Do you want to say a word about that? So it's a particularly optimistic thread that she's put together, which is basically documenting the ways in which the Russian disinformation campaign has been dismantled through what she calls positive actors. So as someone who studies misinformation, the past week has been a masterclass in how positive actors with a strong information operation and tech platforms being somewhat sensible can create an environment in which misinformation struggles to take hold. And so it's basically a list of these sorts of things. What she's glossing over in this, of course, is that like the disinformation campaigns on the other side are just as strong. The underdog and the ghost of Kiev and the, the sunflower grandmother and all of these things that have emerged really rapidly over the last week, they're all very, very strong propaganda messages. That's the same thing, right? Today it was reported that a Chechnyan special forces unit or something like that was sent to assassinate Zelensky and the Ukrainians were able to take out the unit because according to an official Ukrainian statement, the FSB leaked information to the Ukrainians to let them know where this unit was and allowed them to strike before the unit was able to successfully reach them. And they put out a statement saying that FSB didn't want to fight this senseless war and that's why they leaked the info to Ukraine. 
I doubt this is true. Maybe it's true. But seeding in Putin's mind, this paranoia that the agency he sort of came up from right, now has, it might be against him as well. Yeah. I mean, and it's interesting, just like the limits of propaganda. So you have like that posi disinformation. Like when you say the sunflower seed grandma, you mean the woman who like, what, what is it she gave? There's a clip of a Ukrainian grandmother abusing Russian dressed soldiers and saying, take these, put these in your pocket so that you grow something useful when you die on our soil. Like, yeah. And you know, the badass grandmother, like exactly. this kind of thing, like is disinformation bad? Well, before last week, we would have said yes. And now that's the opposite of that is happening. And so the, the whiplash is really strong. Essentially, the psyops that are happening from the Western and Ukrainian fronts are using very similar playbooks to what the Russians have been using historically in the last 10, 15 years in terms of trying to destabilize Western countries such as the United Kingdom and the United States and mm-hmm. Australia and other enemies. One really practical example I keep thinking of with relation to this is the fact that police officers in the United States lie all the time. Like if they're searching for a murderer, say, they're going to tell the press, well, we found DNA of the murderer at the crime scene. So we believe we'll have an ID and we'll be getting close soon when they didn't find the DNA, Mm -hmm. right? They purposefully lie and seed things in order to put pressure, put pressure on, on the, the suspects or ha- witnesses, encourage them to turn right. themselves in, things like this, right? Police are allowed to lie as much as they want, except when they're under oath. Uh, right. That's general practice. I mean, if the police were on the trail of a serial killer and said they had DNA evidence, but they don't, would you, would you label that as disinformation on Facebook? I mean... There's state disinformation, I guess, that always gets a pass. And then it's the grassroots disinfo that is considered problematic. But then there's also like fact-based disinformation. I mean, one important point that P.D. Thorne made on our last podcast on open source information was the difference between mis- and disinformation. Misinformation Mm. is a mistake in the information that you're circulating or Or unwittingly incomplete or lacking context or being unaware of circulating some piece of disinformation. Disinformation is a circulation of falsified facts or falsified narratives with the intention of seeding a different idea. Like you're trying not to propagate truth. You're using information in some way that departs from truth. But I think there's also mis and disinformation on the narrative and context level. And in the fog of war, you forgive narrative misinformation, right? You're like, well, what else is Ukraine supposed to do other than build this story to their benefit as much as they can? Because they're fighting a nuclear superpower and they're going to use every single form of defense that they have available to them. So what we allow and what we can tolerate our thresholds are dependent on the context of the quote, quote, truth teller. Absolutely. The subtlety there that you're talking about is like, I think part of the lost nuance in in describing these things in the accelerated space that we find ourselves in right now. What we're dealing with here is like the same sorts of things as we've always had to deal with misinformation, propaganda, financial weaponry, real world weaponry, all of these things, they're evolutionary in their nature. But the speed in which they're contributing to everything and the intensity of it is is explosive. Mm -hmm. I wonder practically, and I don't know if you know the answer to this, but Afghanistan, all of the money in it's 
central bank was is frozen by the United States. Same with Russia now. Right. Now you have Russia blocked from SWIFT. Uh, you have, And also its central bank assets are completely frozen. Not everything, but a lot of it's been frozen, yeah. Mm. So a lot of central bank assets frozen. The first time I even knew this was possible was hearing about Afghans starving because Biden froze their money and there's a long reach of a lawsuit from 9-11 families to sue the Taliban for billions of dollars for uh, I don't having 9-11 staged within their borders. I don't know. But Kate, I'm wondering if you actually know when things got centralized enough that these kinds of things were made possible. I deal in systems. I'm not a financial expert, but it is the creation of things like the International Monetary Fund and these sorts of structures that emerge in a post-war era. But then along with that form of centralization comes digitization. And this really does come down to the nation state becoming ever more brittle through digitization. The point I think that we just all have to remember is that frozen assets of a Russian oligarch today, those same techniques can be used against you tomorrow. Well, not to mention China's centralized social media system. That's also their payment system. That's also if you are a dissident or criminal or something, they can cut you off from traveling or buying things mm. digitally, which is... Uh, you, can do that in a, you can do that in the States with a felon, though, as well. That's true. <laughs> if you get Good catch point. a felony. That's not to say that I am claiming whatsoever that these are systems that are comparable, but what I am saying is that they have parallels. One day we should sit down and record an episode on the history of the Great Firewall of China and how it came about. An insane amount of money went into the Chinese technology system and the building of the internet in China. It was driven by the Clinton administration, and that was followed up by a huge rush of Silicon Valley companies to grow in basically a completely uncaptured market at that time where they had no competition. And then essentially what happened was the Chinese government drew a giant software firewall ring around the whole thing and then started dismantling all of the Chinese mainland subsidiaries of Silicon Valley companies and intellectual property rights, all these sorts of things are part of a strategy that you can kind of realize as being like a way of understanding and then responding proactively to the violence of economic sanctions Mm. and basically building an infrastructure that is immune to that same kind of pressure. And so the Chinese economy more or less is immune to the same kinds of asset freezing, at least locally, than other countries might be. I mean, it also seems like there's Russia has had a strategy for the past couple of decades of somewhat insulating themselves from sanctions, not running a deficit. That's uh, right. I mean, since since the 90s, if I understand correctly, Russia has been putting aside a good deal of the profits it's been making by selling its natural resources so that it has a massive war chest that allows it to be cut off at some point. Also, Russia adopted legislation known as the Sovereign Internet Law in late 2019 that allows it to shield the country from being cut off from foreign infrastructure. Russia is very consciously, I mean, Recently, but really since the inception of the EU, Russia has been thinking about a functional structure for itself that is sovereign. I think the real difference here is that like you use Apple Pay in the subways of Moscow and you don't use Apple Pay, you use Chinese built hardware and software right. to operate and transact on an individual level in China. And I think that one of the greatest accomplishments of the Chinese government was actually to decouple its vulnerability that way from the United States. So it's not vulnerable in the same way as Russia is. Like these two states prioritize different things. In China, they prioritize digitization and manufacturing of electronics. 
and their proximity to the electronics industry and their pathway between the Southern Hemisphere and the Northern Hemisphere made them extremely great for that. And in Russia, it is like natural resources and wealth generation and capital that comes out of Russia. I mean, both sides have capital. But the difference is, is that when you pour all of this money into building your own digital infrastructure, if you control that entirely, then you are less brittle from the outside attacking you than you are in other contexts. And it is very cool. This comes back to this idea of like self-hosted infrastructure. Mm-hmm. This is ridiculous, but you could almost think of China as being the the biggest self-hoster of the world, right? Like the <gasps> totally. Weirdest. Essentially, the country equivalent of some long-bearded dude running a Raspberry Pi with all of his software on it. 1.8 billion person mesh net. (laughs) Yeah, and it turns out that that paranoia was absolutely correct because, I mean, they'd seen historically the violence of economic sanctions. Are they still vulnerable via the brittleness of digital infrastructure? I definitely think so. I think digital infrastructure has a complexity to it. Everything from the fact that machines have to be manufactured, wires have to be laid, everything that goes into building digital infrastructure and the amount of power that it has to generate is incompatible with the climate crisis that we find ourselves in, thanks to partially digital infrastructure itself. All of these things is beyond the nation state reasons why digital infrastructure makes societies brittle. But one way in which that particular part of the world is not brittle is in the fact that it's chosen very deliberately to quarantine itself from the broader open internet. And the reason you do that, despite the fact that there are really good reasons to promote the open internet, is that in doing so, what comes with that are a collection of cultural and economic hegemonies that can actually then infiltrate and make you even more brittle. Yeah, definitely. And I guess further to that, one should also think about autonomy at different scales. I mean, I guess it brings up the question of urban and some of the teal ideology or whatever, but does it make sense to and have blockchain. a level and blockchain, right, to have a kind of autonomy in certain ways and then allow interdependence in other ways? Like on what level should the community or the individual be sovereign from big tech? One of the ways in which we define this at New Design Congress is the idea of promoting infrastructure equality, which is the saying that like communities, regions, whether that's geographic regions, whether it's ethnographic regions, whether it's subcultural, whatever, can actually be on their own terms rather than have that forced upon them. And I think this is a really core difference between like the promise of like techno-libertarianism and I think what we're advocating for. In this case, it's not about decoupling oneself from the state or from a private infrastructure because there are many reasons why private companies running infrastructure might be the best configuration for a particular example. The fact that there is no negotiation between these structures and people who are expected to live inside them, Mm -hmm. that I think is part of the definitional core beliefs of what we think is really important for the future. These structures should be competing in much more negotiated senses. So the idea that you could create your own systems or enter into someone else's system should be a negotiation. And I think that that then helps to dismantle the forces of scale that we're all unable to escape from right now. Plus sneaker nets and mesh networks and little private internets. It's going to have a romantic resurgence in the future, (laughs) regardless. It's going to feel cool to have a secret (laughs) internet. I mean, it has, if it does come back, it has to come back in a much more nuanced way for sure. I keep coming back to the way 90s and 2000s video games ran dedicated servers mm. where instead of, you would run, you would open a video game like Quake or Doom or whatever and then you had an option to run a dedicated server and bam, it was there and then people could join it. Like these systems are like 
what does Google Docs look like if you could download it on Steam and then open it in your Steam library, like your gaming library, and then it just worked for you? Like this is what's been lost in like the last 10 to 15 years. And it's Mm -hmm. that nuance that we need to have back. I think it's very warranted to have paranoia over the ways in which this has unfolded. By this, you mean the Russian war in Ukraine and the ensuing sanctions? Yeah, because although the responses may be just against a belligerent actor, what it does still show is vulnerabilities and things that could then be used to target you. I had one quick question, and Kate, if you don't know the answer, just we'll move on. But separate from any sort of heroic narrative or moral duty or sacrifice, what benefit in market logic is there to gain from all of these platforms shutting off Russia or hmm. proving they can shut off Russia unless it, they really are doing it. Because they're all trying to rehabilitate they, their image. Right? I mean, I want to know what the less heartfelt, selfless motivations there are. Well, I mean, it could be anything. To speculate a little bit, although I have no information and I'm not suggesting anything here, could be that the people who are able to make these decisions, they're concerned about financial destabilization of the EU. It could be a shock doctrine precedent that they've set that that shows that they are operating beyond the control of a nation state where they can make decisions themselves based on their own governing structures rather Mm. than being beholden to a state. It's really funny how like ultimately like the performative nature of what we see in the public discourse, Mm. what's presented to us is so much more complex than how it actually starts. Mm. The big mistake is to buy into the simplistic narratives that have been built around like unity in this crisis. And I think that when the dust settles and the chips have landed, there will be a time when we are able to really assess like where people went. I mean, this is obvious because this is what happened with the Arab Spring, where everything was seen as like an altruistic collaboration between on the ground protest and the broader multinational companies of social media in particular, which then turned out to be, you know, very much not the case after the fact. With a totally connected world, a totally connected social media space, metagames emerge, performance emerges, morality becomes a dungeon master's guide for whatever next game is being played. That gets into an, like epistemological Yeah, I don't know if thing, people but- are even doing it, like are deploying this stuff in a super conscious way. I mean, I think there's a mix of emotions driving decision-making in the fog of war and wanting to be, of course, on the right side of history, et cetera, and also maximizing whatever your advantage might be amid that. But I imagine in Silicon Valley, particularly with how much we've seen employees get together around issues of Black Lives Matter and things like this, right? There's been so much collective activism in the corporate spaces. Perhaps we aren't at the whims of the executives and the giants of these Silicon Valley corporations, maybe we're at the whims of the hive mind of their employees. That's a good point. That's a very good point. Yeah. I mean, that's how product teams work in general. So it could also be the case for policy. Yeah. Especially fast moving policy. I think it's really interesting that how much gaming has emerged as like a way of making sense of structures and interfaces that we have. I actually find it really funny because to me, the shocking thing about it is that games and their interfaces and their structures are designed for maximum clarity. In a well-designed game, you know everything about what's going on. And you also, if you're playing competitively, you have a solid idea of the mechanics of what's moving, what's going on, and where your opponents might be. If you look at, for example, competitive CSGO, 
like top of the line esports legendary competition, there are structures in place and training programs where based upon in real time process of deduction as two teams from opposite ends of a never changing map meet and compete against each other. The ways in which those teams move means that the team has been trained to understand exactly the chances of which it's almost like the card counting or, or something mm. with like poker. Right. The, the more that you encounter the opponents, the more you're able to then anticipate where the remaining opponents are. Mm. And so to me, actually, one thing that I would challenge in this context is like, we actually don't live in a games world. We live in the opposite of that, where everything is opaque and obfuscated. At the end of the day, the only games that work are games that give you extreme clarity visually and cognitively, even in cases where the game graphics itself are deeply overwhelming. Mm. How do we address the kind of sense of information overload and lack of comprehension as these waves of information wash over us that Julian expressed. And so I think the way in which this is all presented to us is exactly that it's like gamified and, and these sorts of things. But in reality, video games, the ones that have lasted like Counter-Strike, World of Warcraft, all of these games that have lasted 10, 15 years, they've lasted because of their cognitive tightness, because of the ability to anticipate, read, and fully understand the world that they exist within, even if they then like so fast-paced that only 20-year-olds or 18-year-olds can play them competitively. I guess the one thing that we are learning by following this war on digital channels is that even though it's also a screen space, even though the objects and the language and the intensity are similar to a gaming space, the reality of it exceeds any kind of predictable gaming logic. And that's without even mentioning, of course, the humanitarian component of this. Even applying gaming logic to something like war, I think it comes from a place of wanting to have some kind of agency over something that is totally uncontrollable and that is so horrific. I feel like that's where this comes from in the first place. That, that crossover is like the the way in which those gamified like mechanics have been brought into like real world material conflict is like really disturbing to me. It's, I think it makes me like sick in the same way as like early COVID yeah. news made me really sick. But yeah, no, I, I totally, I, I get it. Absolutely. Well, I think that this conversation give us some really good tools to think about the broader information network systems and how they interface. And I'm grateful for that. So Cade, thank you for making the time to join us today. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you, Cade, for joining us. Do you want to share where people can find New Design Congress? NewDesignCongress.org and Helvetta Cade on Twitter. Yeah, like the font, but then my name, Cade, D-E, Helvetta Cade. Definitely check out New Design Congress. They work with corporations and organizations, but they often publish the work or report on the work they do to their website. Kate is also a member of our Discord, so we'll include that information in the Discord post. For everyone else, thank you for tuning in, and thank you again, Kate, for making the time to join us today. Thanks so much. You can also search New Design Congress on Yandex and follow their VK page. <laughs> you accusing oh. me of being a Russian operative? I can't Ciao. believe you. Bye. Ciao. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this New Model special report on digital infrastructure resilience, and thank you, KDM, for joining us. For a related discussion, you can visit newdesigncongress.org. That's all for now. See you next episode. This has been a New Models production. Music and mixing by Low Internet. For more, visit patreon.com slash newmodels. Be sure to sign up for the channel mailing list at channel.xyz 
and stay updated on our upcoming Season 1 public launch.